LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Jason Horsley, who joins us to discuss his book, Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering, and the Psychology of Fragmentation. Prisoner of Infinity examines modern-day accounts of UFOs, alien abductions, and psychism to uncover a century-long program of psychological fragmentation, collective indoctrination, and covert cultural, social, and mythic engineering. Whether it's the forces of God, government, aliens from outer or inner space, or the incalculable effects of childhood sexual trauma on the human psyche, premature contact with these forces compels us to create crucial fictions. Such semi-coherent mythic narratives make partial sense out of our experience, but in the process turn us into unreliable narrators of our own lives. Taking UFOs and the work of experiencer Whitley Strieber as its departure point, Prisoner of Infinity explores how beliefs are created and perceptions are managed in the face of the inexplicably complex forces of our existence. While keeping the question of a non-human and or paranormal element open, the book maps how all too human agendas, such as the CIA's MKUltra program, have co-opted the ancient psychological process of myth-making, giving rise to dissociative, dumbed-down Hollywood versions of reality. The New Age movement, UFOs, alien abductions, psychism, psychedelic mind expansion, transhumanism, the space program. What if they're all productions devised by committee in dark rooms to serve social, political and economic goals that are largely devoid of true substance or meaning? Through an exacting and enlivening process of social, cultural and psychological examination and excavation, Prisoner of Infinity uncovers the most deeply buried treasure of all, the original, uncredited author of all mystery and meaning human soul. Hello and welcome Jason and thank you so much for joining us once again on LegalizeFreedom.com. Hi Greg, thanks for the invitation. Okay, today Jason we're going to be talking about, loosely about one of your books. It's not your latest one but um, a fairly recent one. It's called Prisoner of Infinity, UFOs, Social Engineering and the Psychology of Fragmentation. A lot of what we're talking about will be inspired by that or spun off it. So before we just dive into that, for listeners who don't know, just say a little bit about your background and your work in general. Okay, well I've been writing since I was about 12 or something, and my first interest was film, and actually the first books I published were on film, The Blood Poets, but I had a a sort of parallel interest from quite a young age, not quite so young, uh, in anomalous phenomena, let's say, so uh supernatural ufos 
paranormal, shamanism, occultism, conspiracy, research, and so on. That really sort of blossomed in my 20s. So I've been writing books since my mid to late 20s. I was first published in my 30s. So that was 22 years ago now. I've been writing and publishing books for the last 22 years and also podcasting and doing a lot of research and creative output online. Um, I have a, yeah, kind of a, a fairly wide spectrum of interest, but I'd say there's a common thread throughout, which I probably won't try and sum up now. Although I could say, I suppose that all of this is geared towards the attempt to discover the truth about myself and that that somehow seems inseparable from trying to discover the truth about human beings, you know, the human condition, where we're situated, and that, of course, extends into society, social configurations, and so on, and pop culture and media and whatnot. So it's all been one project. It's very clear to me that I think it always has been, but it's perhaps not so obvious to the outsider that there is this common um, goal and uh, objective behind everything I do. Well, I think if we look into the depths of, depths of ourselves, we necessarily learn something about the species as well, and vice versa. Yeah. So I think what what you said sounds entirely coherent. Now, listeners will have heard my recorded introduction, so they'll know some of the things that we're going to be getting into. So we'll start at the beginning of Prisoner of Infinity, or near it anyway, uh, with something that you and I have in common, though myself to a lesser extent than you, and that's the uh, American author uh, Whitley Strieber, probably still best known in the popular imagination for his 1987 book Communion, which documented his apparently real alien abduction experiences. And I don't know how many different covers it's had, but the edition I got was a very iconic one with, even though it's not actually grey, it's sort of beige, but what um, people would consider the the classic alien grey, you know, with the sort of big bug eyes and the skinny neck and everything else. That When they think of E.T., that's what they think of. For me, prior to that, I had the same interest as you um, when I was a teenager in what you call anomalous phenomena, so the paranormal, supernatural, UFOs. And I'm not quite sure where that came from. I couldn't give you a starting point, but my earliest memory, I think, was Arthur C. Clarke's World of Strange Powers and Strange World. The original one was a TV show that he did and books were brought out later spinning off this and that was one of these sort of programs that you know each edition would look at a different um, um, aspect of the paranormal the weird supernatural whether it's cryptozoology or ufos or conspiracies or whatever it happened to be so by the time i got to whitley streber's uh, communion as i say in 87 i'd already spent at least four or five years immersed in everything i could find to do with with ufos and as it turned out looking back there were way more books that came out in, especially in the sixties and seventies about this phenomenon that I completely passed me by. But, uh, my abiding memory is of finding Strieber's book different to everything that had come before because I hadn't read any kind of first person account at that length in such an erudite way. And, and I'd read other people documenting third party experiences of alien encounters and alleged abduction experiences but nowhere had you know someone who was already an author someone who could write mm. had had these experiences themselves for me it, i didn't quite know what to make of it at the time but i felt that it was significant and i think that was borne out or has been borne out since for me i just felt that 
the main effect that book had was that the the sort of twilight zone between fantasy and reality kind of expanded what I perhaps or what we consider to be real and what goes into the realm of a non-physical. Both of them somehow shrunk and a lot more of it was incorporated into, in, as I say, into a twilight zone. So it was a further blurring of boundaries for me in my mind, uh, in concepts. And unlike you, what I promptly did after reading Communion was put it on the shelf and move on to other books on the subject. And I have never since, to date, read anything else by Straber apart from that book. So perhaps you can just do what I've just done, really, which is share your, your memory of getting your hands on it and what effect it, it had and whether you thought it was particularly significant at the time. Yeah, well, I was a couple of years late to the communion party. I, I think it was 1990 that I discovered it, and I discovered it by a suitably sort of anomalous event, nothing paranormal or anything, but just sort of weird, which was that I was staying... I'd rented some kind of shack in Mexico. This is after I'd moved to Mexico. I suppose I should give some background to that. I moved to Mexico after reading Carlos Castaneda's books, which were introduced to me by an astrologer. So there's a sort of sequence of events or interests there. First of all, I met an astrologer, which was due to emotional heartbreak that I'd suffered. So I was seeking some sort of advice and guidance. And he recommended Castaneda. I devoured Castaneda. And to the point that I, and at this point in my life, I was committed to following a film career, but Castaneda blew all that out of the water. Um, similar reasons what you're describing, the effect of reading Whitley Strieber, that it, 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 it dissolved certain boundaries I had in my mind about what was possible. Um, that was basically it. Well, after I read Castaneda, I, <clears throat> I started to believe that all kinds of things were possible that previously I had not believe were possible, sorcery in a nutshell. And so I was so excited and inspired by that that it took over my my entire orientation and interest in life. I learned Spanish and I moved to Mexico, hoping to find a Don Juan. And um, in those early months, I suppose because I wanted to, I was trying to practice sorcerous sort of, sorts of disciplines, so I wanted to isolate myself for a period. I don't actually remember why I did this exactly, but I ended up renting this uh, stone shack in the forest somewhere, and I, I think I only stayed there a month. But I found while I was there, and I didn't have very much to read, um, it was probably part of the discipline that I just wanted to strip, things down a bit i found a, a ufo magazine that i think was called ufo magazine and <clears throat> it had in it an interview with whitley streber and it's quite remarkable actually because i had been interested in ufos like yourself as an adolescent uh, also through arthur c Clarke's mysterious world was a magazine i got and also the unexplained was another one around the same time so the, i did have this I'd say, you know, minor interest in those, in that subject. Um, but nothing to the point where I'd actually read any books about it, as far as I recall. Um, so, but I'd completely forgotten about UFOs by the time I discovered this magazine. Not that they existed, but they just went on my radar, you know. It was all about sorcery at this point. And, and so I read the magazine because there was nothing else to read. And then I read the Streber article, the interview, and it, it inspired me, you know, I've got to get a hold of this book, which was not possible in Mexico at that time in Oaxaca. Uh, there were no English bookshops. And if there were a few, you know, paperbacks here and there, 
certainly I wouldn't be able to have found that but but as it happened I went to San Francisco via another series of kind of sorcerous encounters uh, a few months later and one of the first things I did or probably the first book I got when I got there anyway was communion so anyway so I read communion and it had a very powerful impact on me as you know from reading Prisoner of Infinity and I mean, I still recall the excitement from reading that UFO magazine and reading that interview and how that excitement propelled me to get the copy of Communion. And, you know, I was I was already primed. I remember, I, I don't know if I'd read it, but it was right after I'd bought it, so I might have even been reading it, showing it to uh, a girl I knew at that time, actually the source of the original heartbreak that led me to the astrologer. Um, we'd kind of hooked up again in San Francisco and I showed her the cover and I said, do you notice the resemblance or the family resemblance? Because I, I so identified with Strieber's narrative with these beings that he was describing and with the picture on the cover that I felt that they were my tribe or that I was one of them, you know, that I was one of these. It was before I knew about the hybrid idea, but... I, I, I never, I should say at this point, I never thought of this as an extraterrestrial phenomenon. I thought of it as the the modern interpretation of, of what was known as, you know, fairy law, as, as uh, Jacques Vallée wrote about in Passport to Magonia. He, he traced all the correspondences between more modern UFO, ET, and abduction accounts and fairy law. And so to me... When I discovered communion, uh, it intersected in two ways, uh, and neither of them had to do with ETs or believing in literal aliens. Um, the first way was this, in that I felt that there was some kind of magical heritage that I was part of as a sorcerer, and that that was genetic, uh, and that um, I was part fairy, let's say, just to keep it short and simple. And that what Strieber was writing about, where these beings and the, these beings were kind of my my tribe, my invisible tribe. And the other thing was that it corresponded. I I found a correspondence. Maybe I contrived to find one with my childhood night terrors, as I write about in Prisoner Infinity. That I suffered as a child, going all the way into early adulthood, occasional fever-induced night terrors in which I would wake up in a state of altered consciousness with no understanding or comprehension of what had happened but the awareness that something profound had happened and I would actually leap out of bed and I would run out of the room and out of the house uh, not always running sometimes I would just stagger and wander around in this daze and it, in the state of absolute horror of abject horror but on other occasions I would actually run the terror was so great and I never, I could never account for those experiences. I just, all I knew was something profound had happened to me in the night while I was sleeping and that it had induced this combination of absolute incomprehension with despair, with, with horror and that it had to do with somehow being altered in some way. Like I, I had seen something or something had been done to me that had altered the fabric of reality so profoundly or revealed another aspect of reality so profoundly strange and alien that it was completely terrifying to my mind. So it was all I really had and that it was induced by fevers. And, and so I did my best to forget those experiences, but I, of course, couldn't completely. And I always wondered, you know, what, 
what was happening there. And as I grew older into adulthood and started following the sorcerer's path, I started to see some of the aberrations and anomalies in my past as sort of marks of my specialness and my uniqueness and related to altered states of consciousness and separate realities in, in Castaneda's term. So I was certainly already open to re reevaluating those experiences as something other than, you know, fever induced uh, aberrational states of consciousness. And then when I read Strieber and his his descriptions of night terrors that were actually caused by you know apparently literal physical intervention by otherworldly beings, I immediately juxtaposed the two experiences and I recontextualized all of those early experiences in the context of Strieber's narrative. So point being, you know, in, in very more succinct terms is that I so identified with Strieber's narrative that it became part of what I've termed in Prisoner of Infinity my crucial fiction. It became a, a, a key element in how I was redefining and reinventing myself on this spiritual path or what I thought was a spiritual path to, to shamanic empowerment. Um, the the UFO and via Strieber, that whole narrative around it to me was always about discovering the truth about myself, discovering the secret life of my soul. That was always how I understood Strieber's narratives. So I was never that interested in UFOs per se, and I never believed in ETs as a literal thing. I mean, I was just on the fence, but I didn't, I certainly didn't think of these beings as ETs initially. It did lead to it because there was something so fascinating and intoxicating about these stories and how they were making my own life feel more epic and, and exciting. You know, like you were saying, like the, the, the boundary between the real and the fancy gets dissolved, so what's possible suddenly expands almost infinitely. That was so exciting to me that I did get hooked on reading E.T. stuff, and I did get much deeper into the more nuts and bolts and paranoid stuff about extraterrestrials. But it was always rooted for me in this much more fundamental belief about that my soul was itself an alien because I was so estranged from it and that to encounter my own soul, and Strieber uses these terms too, might very much be like having an alien, you know, sneak into the room, our room at the dead of the night, like a thief in the night, and, and terrify the hell out of us. Like, to me, those two things came together quite well, and so that was always my, my, my context for it was, was, you know, the, the, the desperate search for an encounter with my own soul. Well, ironically enough, it was when I read Strieber said for that first time that, I mean, he insists that the visitors, the aliens, whatever you want to call them, have an independent existence, uh, though, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're physical. Mm. Uh, but it was around that time that I began to question the idea of the nuts and bolts spacecraft and, you know, physical alien creatures, you know, flesh and blood or whatever it would happen to be. Uh, because up to that point, I was on the fence, like yourself, I would say, as to whether these things existed or not. But if they did, then I was saying, well, yeah, it will be some form of craft, you know, with uh, fuel and propulsion technologies that we don't yet understand. It was all very much framed in those terms. But Strieber's writing brought a different dimension to this because what I read up to that point wasn't written by people who had these direct experiences themselves. They were just UFO hunters, you know, UFO researchers. 
going on sightings and grainy photographs and, and, uh, the legacy of Roswell and what have you. There are a lot of conspiracy theorists, if I can use that term. But what, what Streber described his experiences that forced me to think more deeply about the, you know, this phenomenon, what was going on. And that's when I began to think, well, hang on a minute. Maybe this isn't creatures from Alpha Centauri, whatever, who've come here, you know, with technologies as yet unexplained. Maybe they're, you know, interdimensional in some way. I started to form this suite of possibilities uh, and suddenly it began to make more sense in a way because up to that point, I was coming up against the, the mainstream objections to the idea of, you know, of aliens from other worlds, uh, you know, which are fairly concrete. And when you look at it, even to this day, uh, we have next to nothing to go on to suggest that there's actually anything or anyone out there. Mm. Unless we believe the current... The- Claims of found technology, such as uh, the Pasulka book that I recently reviewed, American Cosmic, which is making these extravagant, extravagant claims for hard evidence of extraterrestrials, but, you know, in this kind of insight clique that so far hasn't gone mainstream. Yeah, but that's the same narrative. That, uh, I mean, I think since I started looking into this, say the first, you know, book on that had maybe had a chapter in UFOs would have been in the early 80s. It's been exactly the same since then. And, you know, I've interviewed people about this and I've pressed them on this. Yeah, but it's always just around the corner. You know, it's always, you know, disclosure, disclosure, disclosure. Well, when? That, again, it's not ruling out any of uh, the possibilities that that, that some UFO and uh, alien, you know, extraterrestrial researchers put out there. I'm not, I, I haven't got, Equally, I have not got evidence to rule it out, but I'm just saying, show me something, you know. If I had to come down on one side of the fence or the other, let's just say we were having a few drinks and a wager, mm. I'd say, okay, well, there's my 10 bucks. Um, I think that uh, there's nothing out there, you know, because it's not that much to lose, is it? Nothing out there, as in nothing, no hard evidence for extraterrestrial presence on Earth as opposed to nothing out there in the universe. Um. Again, if it was just ten bucks or a round of drinks, I would say the latter. Actually, wow. but that's that, so but unusual. Because that's, that, yeah, that's almost the argument that everybody makes. If you ask, and it's weird because they go right from UFOs, which is unidentified, right, to ETs. But anyway, you say, do you believe in ETs? Or I mean, do you? What do you think about UFOs? And the the most common argument or whatever answer is. Well, it's such a big universe, there must be some, <laughs> something out there. So it's funny you've, you've, you've taken the absolute opposite position. I, I just I just think it's a possibility that for some people seems completely unacceptable, even almost, uh, you know, heretical in some way. But I just think it's definitely one, something worth considering. But but we, we could do a whole hour talking about that idea. Sure. And, and I, I'll probably return to that, actually. Uh, in a future talk with you, because it is quite an important idea. But anyway, the, the the central takeaway from what I was saying was really that it was Streber's literalism that caused me to to question the literalism of everything I'd read before. But you're also saying that Streber was less literal than other stuff you'd read before. Yeah, that's true because he was he was given this first hand experience that he had, but he was still talking about kidnaps and like rectal probes and all the rest of it and yeah, if you very, see what I mean very literal in the sense of a physical presence absolutely he was he stayed on the fence although he keeps hopping from one side to the other but he keeps get, going back on the fence to claim that he is on the fence uh, as far as whether it's extraterrestrials or interdimensional or time travelers or us I mean his his main thing is it's us in some other state and so that 
that would certainly have been one of the takeaways I got from Strieber. Uh, he would have, if he didn't seed, then he would have poured water on an idea that was already in me, which was, yeah, this is another aspect of, of me, of myself, or of humanity, uh, this presence that we're talking about. I don't want to jump, you know, too far ahead right now because I'm not sure where you want to go or which route you want to take. But that's one of the things that I found myself having to map and that was very helpful to me to map with Prisoner Infinity was the incongruity between the notion of an encounter with one's soul or a high di higher dimensional aspect of ourselves with the very raw physicality of Strieber's experiences, which actually include violent forms of abuse and so I've what I've tried with prison community is to pass those two out so I'm not ruling out the possibility that there is something numinous or something that transcends what we think we know about social reality or even human existence going on there but there seems to be very clearly a, just a pure raw physical aspect which I don't think is transcendental at all I think it's probably entirely human and it does seem as though these two realms of experience have been entang got tangled up in the alien abduction phenomenon and uh, that itself is a mysterious thing but that's very central to what I've been doing is trying to untangle them because I know I don't want to hitch my wagon to you know an MK Ultra uh, intelligence program of traumatizing people to make them believe that they've been abducted by aliens there's, there's nothing you know there's nothing magical about that, there's nothing empowering, there's nothing liberating about that, it's just plain ugly, right? And yet, I don't think it's been possible for me to throw the the transcendental baby, I won't say the star child, because I don't really approve of that movie, but the, the what I'm talking about, the aspect of our own nature that may be revealing itself in some way through this phenomena, um, I don't, it hasn't proved possible to uh, throw that out entirely. I mean, there does seem to be a baby there. So I'm, I'm really attempting to just filter off the bathwater of all these beliefs. Anyway, I think the reason I'm saying all this is, is that for me, one of the clearest ways so far to establish that, or, or at least as a hypothesis, is that this is real insofar as it's not physical kind of paradoxically. Like, I'm, I'm even open to extraterrestrials as a presence, but I, I still am very entirely sceptical with you that they would have any presence here on Earth in, in any kind of physical way. I just find that idea, not that it's unacceptable, I just find it wholly unnecessary. Yes, yes, I think so. It's, it's just very simplistic. Uh, I think, and I also think it springs from as much as some of the more weirder and wonderful and mystifying dimensions of this might be connected to experiences that humanity has been having for a long time, probably since forever, that are part of, maybe part of our inner selves, we just don't know. I do think that a lot of, a lot of sort of speculative fiction has fed into, I think, germs of these ideas and, and uh, grains of human experience have fed into speculative fiction that are then fed back into um, ideas about the reality of and any of all of this, you know, when it comes to alien life and UFOs. So because we've imagined certain things, like, you know, we imagined going to the moon long before we had the technology to do so. That was just sort of like, oh, you know, you know, what if there's life on the moon? Could we ever go there? And possible to imagine this. These stories, going to the moon was imagined before we even had flight, you know, mm. on Earth. 
So, and as much as then we eventually apparently did go to the moon, I think this sort of similar process has gone on with extraterrestrials and UFOs that we then extrapolated this, you know, life on other planets, life in other galaxies, life across the universe. And there's a certain logic to thinking it's a big universe, as you were saying earlier. What are the odds? There's going to be nothing out there. And then all of these things are imagined. It becomes almost like it can't be unimagined mm. that, you know, that, that, uh, fiction escaped into the re- the reality that we've constructed in our own minds and it can't be brought back again. It's like no amount of evidence or lack of evidence will ever convince some people that there isn't extraterrestrial life out there that if we haven't interacted with it, we can interact with, if you see what I mean. Yeah, well, it's become central to their reality tunnels, let's say. It's a part of the configuration of their... <laughs> their reality, and I mean, this is something I explore in the first in this, this series of books, Seen and Not Seen, the, the extent to which popular media, because we get introduced to it as children, and because of how appealing it is to us as children, as an escape thing, as a fantasy, you know, feeding fantasies and whatnot, um, we were very susceptible to uh, these fantasy narratives, even as adults, and um, I also write about this in Prisoner Infinity, what you were just talking about there, with the moon landing, if it happened, and even if it didn't, uh, scenario planning, which is a NASA methodology that's been going on for decades now, which is to even to employ science fiction writers to this end, to write scenarios that are desired to bring about. So whether it's technology, whether it's social change, whether it's, you know, uh, colonization of planets, the space program is the most obvious example with NASA. They, they commission people to write these scenarios that will, well, initially it's sort of like a thought experiment so they can work out the different problems in advance. But the other aspect is, this is a kind of living propaganda that introducing these narratives into the culture is going to seed new generations of individuals uh, and inspire them with a desire to bring about those realities precisely because they formed the, the, the texture of the fantasy life that they they found to escape into as children. Right? So even now, now we've got not just all these superhero movies, you know, that are inspired by movies that your or my generation grew up on, I mean, comic books, sorry. Um, but we've also got, you know, different technologies that are trying to develop superpowers and different nanotechnology or whatever else it is. The whole idea of developing superpowers, which is part of Scientology, uh, is becoming more and more realizable, or at least it's more and more of a fantasy that people believe is realizable, which is a very blurry line. Uh, and also with space travel, like how would we know... If we, if we really can go into space, if we ever have gone into space, unless we were on those spaceships, we'd never really know. But the desire and the drive to do so is certainly fueling a huge industry of something, whatever that money's going into. And it's greasing the wheels of capitalism, as I write about in, in Prisoner Infinity, or the, you know, the, the, the basic social system that we have is being fueled by these various drives to create technology and bring about social change that corresponds with scenarios that have been mapped out, you know, decades in advance. Um, 
as a way to instill people with a profound desire to make these things real. But also, as you're pointing out, um, it, it blurs the line really between what is real and what isn't, or what people are, are, end up believing is real or not, uh, if only because, well, for a number of reasons, isn't it? But certainly to start with, because the desire to believe is so strong. I mean, when we have fantasies uh, as children, and we we fall for that allure of make-believe. Um, I mean, this is very much the feeling I had when I was reading about UFOs in that magazine. It awoke something in me that was like, oh God, yes, I remember what it was like to believe in these things as being possible. Same with Castaneda. And uh, it's it's recontextualized in a way that is at least superficially co uh, convincing to my adult sensibility, and so I'll run with it. And we can we can definitely make it real to an extent. I don't know what extent it is. I think that's a whole thing we could spend an hour or more talking about. Also, is the extent to which uh, we you know we experience reality subjectively anyway, and so we're shaping it. But um, certainly, in terms of how we physically act in the world, that is being shaped by our beliefs, and that can extend to all kinds of technologies and practices, ceremonial magic, say, or whatever's going on with the ET thing now. My God, I mean, there's all these groups and cults and communities who are out there, you know, recording it and claiming to be receiving messages, star transmissions. This goes back at least to Timothy Leary. He was all about star seed transmissions. We can see this theme running through from the counter, even before the counterculture, all the way back to theosophy. There's this theme of ascended masters or star, you know, brothers or etc. Right, space brothers, uh, and actually it goes all the way back to angels. That was another thing I wanted to mention was that it used to be that as a Christian culture we believed that this universe or this existence, because it wasn't about the universe, was inhabited by angels and demons. And that was understood in a similar way as in the universe is so big, there must be someone out there. Well, God's glory is so, you know, is, is infinite. So, of course, it's filled with all kinds of mysteries. And, but it's all, it's all coming from God. But similar, you know, like the Christian, it was central to his or her worldview that this, that this existence was populated by invisible beings. And now we have, now that's been updated for our techn technological, uh, secular mindset into, into extraterrestrials. So it may well be that there's just a fundamental, either a need to believe, or if we're going to be less skeptical, more open, there's a fundamental knowing about a hidden aspect of reality that includes other, other beings. And so we just, as you were saying, we just come up with new narratives and new interpretations uh, that are updated as a way to fix that in reality so we can count the angels on a head of pin. And the danger in that is, well, I explore in Prison Infinity, that we end up counting our own projections. We're not interfacing with the real phenomena then, because we're, we're instead interfacing with our own interpretation, which has then fixed something that can't be fixed. So I think it becomes like an empty shell, or perhaps... Maybe it's like an egregore also, to use a term that you've discussed recently on your podcast. It, it may have some psychic reality, but I don't think it corresponds with an objective reality. Um, just before I move on, I'll throw something out that may be of interest to uh, people who've just listened to part of what you just said. 
Um, I did a show recently with an American author called Thomas Lombardo, and that was about a recent book that he wrote. It's called Science Fiction, The Evolutionary Mythology of the Future, and that essentially looks at how science fiction ideas... He goes right back to the, 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 the earliest history of it in his first volume and how that eventually ends up shaping what becomes real in the world. So that's very interesting. I'll also just say another thought that spun off while I was listening to you was that, you know, of course we have the, you're talking about angels and, how, you know, being updated as eras in human history come and go. I remember some of the early UFO books that I read talked about this just didn't start with Roswell. The modern UFO area, you could pin to that, even though there were sightings of similar supposed craft, you know, in the earlier in the 20th century. You, you can trace this back to sort of fires in the sky and, and, you know, chariots of fire and all this stuff going back thousands of years. That may be part just of this, exactly the same phenomena, whatever that happens to be. The third thought that came out of what you just said was like, the, the you said a need to believe. And a lot of it I find... When I've, you know, been to some, uh, you know, meetings and talks and presentations by, shall we just call them the UFO community? Let's just put it like that, UFO spotters. It was a bit like a train spotters thing, you know, to be at some of these events. And one component was definitely among certain individuals. I don't like it here. Let's look up there. I don't like it here. Let's imagine something else. Some, something bad happened to me, so I'm going to enter a dream world to make it better. And I couldn't help thinking about overlaps between that and some of Whitley Strieber's experiences that you speculate about, speculate about in Prisoner of Infinity and some of the experiences of your own that you've already spoken about today. Yeah, I think it is quite common. Um, and I think there's a, there's a bit of a knot in there. Like there are people like myself who believe that they're, who start to believe that they're not from here and that they're not really human, that they're aliens in human form and so on. This is definitely part, I imagine if you did a survey and if people were trusting enough uh, uh, in those meetings and those groups and whatnot, you'd probably find quite a few people who claim to be not from here. Um, and, there may be some truth in this. I'm definitely not ruling it out. But there's also, this is also very symptomatic of trauma. Like if we're traumatized when we're young, our bodies become uh, contaminated. They become uninhabitable to us. They become uh, possibly repulsive or frightening or just painful being in our bodies and identifying with with here with being here is intolerable and that's very much the mechanism of dissociation is you know this physical reality or what something we're experiencing is intolerable and therefore we dissociate into this other realm which could be fantasy or it could be it could be a subtler realm of existence or it could be a mixture of both and this is again what I explore with prisoner infinity that um Although dissociation as a reaction against intense trauma can access other realms, the very nature or the impetus behind that access is, is likely to color the way that we interpret those other realms. In other words, if we're freeing, if we're fleeing an intolerable reality, even if we manage to make it into these other realms, what kind of state of consciousness are we in? as we arrive in these other realms, 
we're in a dissociated state, which is to say we're in a traumatized state. And so we're going to be not perceiving in a neutral way. We're going to be desperate to believe in the benevolence of what's there. You know? So we're likely to confabulate, even even if we're in a, uh, another realm that's subtle than this, we're still confabulating. And so then we come back with a only a partially real experience. And and I think that this is very much... I think this is one of the reasons that the UFO thing continues to be a problem, like with as many books and as many research as this has been, there's been very few that have actually been willing or able to go as deeply into psychology as it's necessary to go to understand the mechanism of trauma and dissociation and fantasy with a pH, as Freud talks about it. They they might go into the quantum mechanics of we generate our own reality, but that's kind of <clears throat> that's sort of jumping that's jumping ahead too rapidly because well, I don't actually believe that we create our own reality is the thing. Um but certainly we can we have the power to distort reality, we know that. And um, we know, I think, that even our physical relationships that seem to be, you know, just here and now and nuts and bolts, get distorted by our own patterns, you know, by our own expectations, by our own fears and desires. We can't even see our partner clearly. And yet, if we have an encounter with some interdimensional being that we call an alien or an ET or an angel or whatever, somehow we believe that we've really... You know, we can come back with a, with a, uh, an accurate representation of that experience. It's very unrealistic. It's very naive, I think, because, um, we're talking about something that really is generally inaccessible to our ordinary awareness. So how do we access it and why do we access it is the question, I would say. And what I've, and <clears throat> what I'm getting at is, is that, if we're driven to access it by trauma, by a discomfort in our own bodies, or our own lives, uh, there's going to be a corresponding need to see things a certain way and to believe things. And that, as we know, you know, if, if we're heavily invested in believing something, we're not going to look at what's actually there. We're just going to look at the bits that we want to see, and then we'll come back and say, that's what happened. Well, that wasn't what happened. That was only a very small part of what happened. We see that in Strieber's narratives. He he excludes all of the elements that I gather together in Prisoner Infinity that point at a very malevolent human agency involved in it, almost to the point that one could explain all of his experiences that way, even though I don't personally believe that. But you can see why he wouldn't want to include them if it would throw into doubt everything. Uh, and it would, you know, even if, even as I'm saying... If, if you say, well, that can only explain 50% of what happened to Strieber or whoever, you still don't know which 50% it is. You're still left with, I can't believe anything about what happened to me because I don't know how much of it was engineered through human manipulation and a combination of my own dissociative strategies. I actually don't know. All I know is that something happened. It could have just been something awful and all the good stuff was a dissociative fantasy. That's where I've been for, for many years. And at this point in time, interestingly enough, I'm, I am at the point where I feel I've sorted the seeds enough to say, well, no, there was something, or there is something that is truly transcendental occurring in my life that does correspond with angels and, and 
higher dimensional entities and space brothers if you want you know if you want it to i i don't say that i do because those those terms have been so uh compromised now that i would proceed with enormous caution but i do feel that yeah there is a genuine reality underneath these fantasies that we've created but the the problem is it's it's given us a premature and unearned sense that we know what we're dealing with or that what we're talking about when we don't and so the necessary um method for me is to well let's let's go back to earth first you know maybe we made it into outer space and saw all these things but we're not too sure so we better come back to the earth and back to the body and start there and and work with that and um, you know see what's left uh as what i said in a recent podcast what's left when we stop believing What's left when we've identified the need to believe has led to this over-reliance on these fabricated narratives, cynically fabricated, I would say, in many cases. Um, we, yeah, we let go of the need, and then with the need goes the belief. And then, and then what's left after that, when we're in this, this neutral space where we can just examine our experiences without the belief and without the need to believe? Ah, well, there's the thing. I'll return to Streber again in a moment, but I've always wondered this in general, uh, but certainly applies uh, to what we're discussing here, is why we find this, the, the reality that we're apparently in, the sort of 3D physical reality, when we when we wake up in the morning, when we look down at our bodies or look out the window or go about our daily tasks, whatever they happen to be, why we find it all so either unremarkable or certainly not magical, or even intolerable in a way. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons mm. in the light of and in the context of that reality why you know people might find their existence intolerable. But and, and yet, and everything else holds out, if not real magic or transcendence, then kind of the promise of it. It's like almost everything, every conceivable reality, whatever form it might take, whatever dimension it might be in, whatever on whatever plane, whatever level, past, present, future, whatever. It's it's all. It offers something that this doesn't, you know. I never quite understood that. Well, it's because it's not here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's not here. It's like it's like the, the for me, it's like the. I, I used to wonder why I like train stations so much because I've not got no interest in trains, but I, I like my life in general. I have to generalize about it, but the train station always offered the possibility. It's, it's always about going somewhere else, and it seemed to be just pregnant with possibility. Mm. Yeah, well, I love traveling for that reason. There's that feeling of being on track going somewhere, and it's going somewhere new or somewhere old, but it's relatively new. Um, and I think that, I, th- I do think there's a positive aspect to that, which isn't just dissociative or, you know, grass is always greener dissatisfaction. I mean, that's the obvious thing that we're just, we're basically unsatisfied so we always imagine that some change or some other state or experience would provide satisfaction that that's really obvious how that works it doesn't answer the question of why we're dissatisfied that's the big question isn't it and i think that there is an answer in that and i talk about being liminal that uh there's something about going from one state to the next that isn't merely about the promise of the new state but about 
being in motion and being in free flow where we can't we don't need to but also we can't um rest upon the structures of our life and our identity to the same degree hence we're not restricted by them so when we're liminal even if we're just traveling we don't feel quite ourselves in the same way as we do when we wake up in our bed every morning and you know do the same things over and over again that that reinforces the experience of being restricted by our identity which extends into our lives obviously the lives we create uh, are shaped by our identity how we identify ourselves right and so that that's that's the problem i would say is is that we are imprisoned by our identity and that brings us back to trauma this is this is symptomatic of a trauma like trauma creates a primal split in the psyche and the psyche is a split against itself you could say even the soul and the body that aren't you know married together um that's perpetual suffering uh and it prevents any kind of autonomy or spontaneity because we're always pulling in two directions we're trying to get away from the trauma because it's unbearable in the body but we're trying to get back in our bodies because that's the only place to be you know it's the only way to be here as if we're in our bodies so we're we're pushing and pulling the whole time and that extends into every realm of everything right because it's it's fundamental the split is fundamental it's at the deepest level of our being essentially um and hence the appeal of fantasies and i think particularly fantasies that provide an illusion of being whole or an illusory promise of being whole yeah well part of what you said there is the idea of you know the journey is the destination sort of thing is wherever you arrive yeah there you are but that's everything that you know you haven't left yourself behind as it were and returning to streber just again you're mentioning trauma there um, a moment ago because as i mentioned i think earlier i haven't actually finished reading prisoner of infinity yet there's just so much in there that we we started this before i'd even completed the book so i can't remember if you corresponded or tried to correspond with him personally but there are certain certainly other authors who have had a lot to say about these subjects that you have corresponded with and there's been it's been somewhat I don't, I don't want to use the word frustrating that would be for you to select the word but you document this in the book and unsatisfactory perhaps would be the way to put it with some of your correspondences and trying to get them to acknowledge certain other dimensions of this shall we say yeah so as Jeffrey Kripal was the obvious example as in my attempt to correspond with him about his essay the traumatic secret which frames Strieber's experiences in the context of trauma-based enlightenment or enlightenment that comes about through trauma uh that was the genesis of prisoner infinity that i read that and i didn't get tried to engage him with dialogue and couldn't so really i mean I, his his answers were unsatisfactory and so then i ended up writing about it and then one thing led to another and I ended up writing the whole book um piece of lavender was another but he's not so much mentioned in prisoner infinity as in vice of kings i did correspond with streber i i've got nowhere with streber the only time he's even responded almost the only time is when i've just praised stuff he's done and then he's been gracious about it he has responded publicly online a couple of times defend defensively and it's very clear that he considers me a uh an, a, an, a, a hostile agency if not you know a, 
a shill or a, you know a deliberately conscious agent trying to undermine him which which isn't in any way surprising as i said that if i if i strip down the method of prison infinity to its very basic approach um i i'm looking for the anomalies in streber's life of anomalies you know he he makes a big deal of all these anomalies in terms of how he has experiences that no one else has but or at least people aren't talking about but i'm looking for the anomalies that are not anomalous to his own narrative that contradict things he said or that introduce elements that themselves uh, throw into question his own interpretation right so those kinds of anomalies which is what a detective looks for when he's looking you know to solve a mystery and um that the very nature of that is going to be certainly based on my thesis which is, is that Strieber like all of us to one degree or another has cobbled together an identity and a world view as a defense against trauma that is is a crucial fiction it's it's a it's a made up story based on true elements that is spun in such a way that it maintains a sense of purpose and meaning that is crucial to his psychological well-being and so if i'm introducing the elements that throw into question that it's like if you're in therapy and you're telling your story and you're insisting this is the way it is and the therapist says well wait a minute when you said this about your mother but actually earlier you said that so which is it and the patient has to think wait a minute I've said two things here, only one of them can be true. That can, a, a therapist has to be very careful about that because that can, that can prematurely, um, threaten the, the patient's, uh, fiction, his defenses. And then it, it may backfire. He may strike out against the therapist and he may, you know, double down and, and become even more, uh, committed to maintaining the delusion. This is well known. So, you could say that that's what I'm doing for the whole UFO, I don't want to say community because that's making it more personal, but for the whole new, the whole UFO audience cult, all the people out there and the narratives out there that are being spun, I'm effectively attempting to punch holes in it, whether, or, or rather stick my finger where holes already are let's say, so people become aware, oh, there's a hole there, there's a hole there, there's a hole there. And that is, is not, it's not going to be welcomed by other researchers generally. And then if you add to that, there's this whole conspiratorial element, which is deliberate deception and disinformation, then, of course, it's impossible to know if a person is simply reacting emotionally against something they don't want to think about, or they know that this is a true anomaly and it does expose a deception and they're, they're, you know, invested in maintaining the deception consciously and then they're simply going to dissemble and try and discredit and so on. So I don't personally know as a writer when I'm encountering resistance which it is. I can only intuit. With Strieber, my intuition is that he is mostly sincere but he's very divided and fragmented. So there are parts of him, I think, that are consciously deceptive, but that he can justify it to other parts that are more, have more integrity by saying that this is necessary for the overall project, let's say, of, of revealing the truth about something. Probably we all 
just find ways to justify that only happen because we're compartmentalized or are only possible because we're compartmentalized double think right um with others uh i've felt less sure that there was even any sincerity there but who knows you know i mean as i said in my review of uh american cosmic when it comes to the ufo mystery we're talking about in many ways kind of the most complex and deceptive and tangled web that has ever existed in human history it's 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 truly a a minefield of of lies delusion truth fantasy you know all just bound up together so that's going to be the case with any individual who's writing about it unless we posit an absolute disinformationalist which i suppose there are those as well but in most cases i think we've got largely sincere people who are trying to get to the bottom of it they're just not willing to to tap on the false bottom you know and i think there's many false bottoms so they just stop at a certain point and they they don't say we've got it all figured out but they just carry on exploring that set of evidence which is a relatively superficial one like like a pasulka with american cosmic right? she presented a bunch of evidence but it wasn't very deep she didn't dig very deep um and it didn't take much to just tap on 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 that you know foundation that she was presenting for it to crumble and you see oh wait no that's a false floor and there's another floor underneath that and who knows what's underneath that so i think i don't think we can separate here and you probably experience this as a podcast or talking to people we can't separate you know how deep someone can go into any given mystery with how willing they are in their own personal development to explore their own unconscious and and, and really look at unpleasant truths about themselves like the, the, it's, it's all one isn't it like how 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 much integrity a person has as a human being is clearly going to determine how how reliable they are as a researcher or as a writer or anything like that yeah exactly and there's how much that they're conscious of any of that uh as, as well you know they're saying well you know to themselves in you know in the depths of, of night at least i have this and i know i'm this and i wish i was more of this and i'm not that and i know this affects what i'm doing but you know that's between me and me and and how much they, they no real uh, conscious awareness of of you know what's feeding into their work that they're you know by definition don't don't know about well the american cosmic book i haven't read it but there's quite a fair bit of attention um, around it, certain circles. I saw a few reviews and people like yourself mentioning it in different contexts. And for me, having not read the book, but just read a couple of reviews and looked at it and tried to, tried to see what it was saying to what I did know about it. What was that saying to me? What did I feel about it? And some people say, well, that's not valid. What do you mean what you feel about it? Haven't you? What do you feel about a book you haven't read? Mm-hmm. Um, the sense I had, which might be completely wrong. I'd have to read the book was that it was, Something that was presenting itself as lifting the lid on something, but was actually putting, trying to put a lid on something, if you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the definition of a cover up on some, some forms of cover up, aren't they? That they appear to be revealing something. And, and certainly a definition of the UFO thing that, uh, it, it's apparently disclosing something. And part of what it's disclosing is there's been this big cover up. But paradoxically, the disclosure of the cover-up itself is a cover-up of <laughs> something else. So, 
Um, I think that's always the case, isn't it, though? And, unless, I mean, to some extent it's always the case uh, that we're, if we think we're revealing the truth about something, then we're probably jumping the gun there because we would, with one hand we're revealing and with another hand we're actually using the revelation to conceal. That's a psychological uh, defense strategy that we all do. Um, so, but with American Cosmic, I would say, yeah, it's, it's, it seems to be more overtly. And the only thing I don't know is whether it's intentional. And I don't know how important that is. I mean, I'm trying to kind of let go of that because it's an impossible objective to try and figure out how sincere people are um and i think what what we're talking around now is it really doesn't really matter because really what counts is how conscious they are right and that that's something that's i mean one can only be as sincere as one is conscious but if one is really conscious then sincerity just comes naturally i would say one of the the key aspects of all this that we talked about somewhat in our previous uh, interview uh, on your on your latest book Vice of Kings which listeners can find uh, on the legalizefreedom.com website if they just uh, put your name into the search box or even just click on UFOs as a in the tag cloud is the connection between the, the UFO phenomenon everything that comes with that uh, the various experiences that people have, whether it's physically witnessing something as they as they see it, lights in the sky, craft, beings, these uh, memories, you know, and uh, experiences, abduction experiences, as Streber documents, and where they overlap with, because I think they're basically two different things, but where they overlap with what you do talk about more in Vice of Kings, which is systematic child abuse. And that is where... A lot of people are just kind of, whoa, okay, I'll stop you there. You know, we're not going there. This happens, but might have something to do with UFOs. I don't know, but they just don't want to go there. It reminds me of the, the saying, you know, the best lies are partly true. And it would seem that something happened to Whitley Strieber. Clearly, he's aware of that. He's tried to document it. But as you've tried to explore, you said at the top of the hour, it's almost what you're your life's work is about now is trying to just dis- discover yourself. You know, what, what has your life been up to this point? Um, who are you? And so it's that, um, if you imagine a Venn diagram, it's that overlap, that gray area where the UFO phenomenon and child abuse intersect. That is for, I think for many people, whether they're have an interest in particular in UFOs, but it's, it's, um, it's somewhere that they're not willing to go. And that's what I was thinking of when, you know, you, particularly you've spoken there about whether it's Whitley Straber or whether it's the authors of American Cosmic. How conscious is this? How deliberate is this? And is there in organized systematic child abuse, which just is a thing, and as you document is deeper and more disturbing than many of us would like to think, is that the, the source of all this uh, UFO and abduction material and experiences, or is there simply as what would seem to be the case to me that there are paranormal phenomenon, as we would call them, which the UFO and abduction experience is but one aspect, that is that is a thing that we're experiencing, experiencing, exploring and struggling to understand that just so happens to 
that can be made use of, shall we say, can be exploited by those who would like to cover up what they're doing in the same way that many other opportunists throughout history have taken something that's a separate reality and just said, oh, we can use this as a mask for our operations. Well, I think it, I think there is that element that you just summed up at the end. But I don't think that that's the main one or as interesting as this other element, which is much harder to talk about. But we have touched upon it today, which is, I've called it, on occasion I've called it hacking the psyche or fracking the psyche. The psyche is a, an energy source even. And uh, the correlation, because this is, you know, this is Kripal's thesis for the traumatic secret. My problem with his, his thesis was that he was conflating psychic states with enlightenment. And if he'd done his research, he would know that there's no correlation between psychic states or what, is, or what are known as cities in Eastern tradition with enlightenment. There's no correlation except so far as the the, the uh, cities and whatnot can be and generally are an obstacle to enlightenment and uh, because of their temptations and distractions. But there's another element there, which is that enlightenment is about wholeness, I would say. that One could define it in various ways that hopefully are quite simple, but like the, the soul being fully landed in the body or consciousness coming all the way into the body, let's say, so that one is becomes fully who one is and is able to live from that center of consciousness. Um, so it's about wholeness, whereas cities um, and psychic phenomena seem to be about fragmentation. And there seems to be a lot of evidence, I would say, the jury is is in on this. Like it's been established, it's just that it's, you know, it's, it's soft science, it's not hard science. But um, that when the psyche is fragmented, we could say that there's a natural kind of defense we have against psychic or subtler physical realities. Because if we didn't have that, like a lead shield or whatever we want to call it, we would be constantly prey to these invisible forces, whether they're beings or not, right? So, like radiation, you could say, of the collective unconscious, and of who who knows what all is out there, but we've all had some experiences, if, if only through dreaming or through drugs. Um, so we we have a natural protective shield against that, and the trauma shatters that shield or, or, or can create a, a, a split in it. And Strieber himself writes about that. He calls it the mirror of expectation. When they get shattered, we're no longer just seeing what what we're conditioned to see, we're able to see things that we, you know, that aren't consensually seen. Uh, of course, he has a positive spin on it. I'm putting a different spin on, which is um, we just become overly vulnerable to this vast sea of psychic phenomena, for lack of a better term. And um, it can possess us, it can infiltrate us, it can uh, drive us mad, and so on and so forth. So... Um, so, so the, the, the overlap then between UFO and paranormal phenomena and organized child abuse, I think, is here. I mean, I think this is where it's most significant, which is, is that victims of early sexual trauma will experience some kind of psychic fragmentation 
and and therefore in many cases if they don't just become self-destroying drug addicts which actually is in most cases but even in those cases they may also uh, develop what might be seen uh, in a particular light a cripal kind of light as prodigious psychic powers um, you know just receptivity to other levels of reality and and so you could see how that could also become a resource. I mean, it's possible at least to imagine that. It's very Philip K. Dickian, you know, with the precogs and whatnot. You could see how traumatizing children in order to crack their psyches and therefore access invisible realms through those children. It's how magicians used to use children as for scrying, you know, without necessarily, I don't know if they uh, traumatize them or not, but they certainly use children. So I imagine sometimes it involved traumatizing them. Um, one could see how that, that actually could be done deliberately, intentionally, to have access to um, a realm of experience that that has been interpreted as a UFO, an alien, not exclusively, of course, it's been interpreted as fairies, as demons, as, as jinn, as hungry ghosts, as ancestors, you know, there's all kinds of non-physical aspects to reality that um, one might be able to access through a a traumatized psyche right so so but it, it's still very blurry because one doesn't have to posit intentionality of mk ultra deliberately traumatizing children in organized rings of child abuse uh, in order to access the psychic realms to to just say that if you have lots of children being traumatized psychologically fragmented we're going to have more and more psychic phenomena Right. We could just stay with that. We don't have to go into the organizational aspects, but we can. But there's clearly a correlation. And it's um, it's central to understanding trauma, I think. Not just to understanding the UFO stuff, but understanding trauma. Like, how do we cope with trauma? There's a book that I quote quite a lot in Prisoner Infinity, which is A Cursed Religion, uh, when trauma becomes our god, and his hypothesis is simply that anything that's that's too overpowering for us to process psychologically, emotionally, or physically as children, i.e., trauma, becomes akin to god because it transcends our ability to understand it, and that somehow that naturally then gets superimposed onto or our beliefs or ideas about God get superimposed onto that traumatic memory or quasi-memory right uh, and so basically yeah trauma becomes our God so in this case we're talking about trauma becomes our ET trauma becomes our alien you know trauma becomes our, our ubermensch trauma becomes our psychic savior whatever else it is that more or less meets the same criteria of God. And of course it involves benevolence as well. There's, a, there's this instinctive, reactive uh, recourse to not just project sup sup supernatural powers onto tr trauma or the agents of trauma, but also benevolence. 
and we know that to be a coping mechanism for children as well, that it's so terrifying to be traumatized that they have to believe that somehow the person is good, because then at least they can feel that they're in good hands, even though it's terrifying what's happening. So then they blame themselves. I'm doing something bad. I'm being traumatized because I'm bad, because then they can maintain the crucial fiction that they're in good hands. This is particularly the case if it's a parent, of course. But even if it's any adult that has access it can, I think it can be so overwhelming that the child somehow has to put the bad on themselves to believe that they're, that they're in good hands, that somehow this is for their own good, because then at least it, they're still safe, even though they're not safe, right? Even though something terrible is happening. And I, and I met that with Strieber's experiences as a child, being subjected, put in the Skinner box, and tortured and tormented in ways that he's never disclosed, and then dissociating slash being rescued by the visitors at that very early age. Um, that was the inception of what I call his crucial fiction, but his narrative about the visitors, which he maintains now to, I think he's in his late 60s now, so he's maintained that ever since those, those initial traumatic uh, experiences. Well, Jason, I think that would be a good point to draw to a close for today. In the near future, we shall return to speak more about possible agendas here. There is the idea that trauma is behind all of human history and perhaps trauma in the very distant past. This is not an unusual idea, has shaped the way that we are now. Perhaps something extremely bad, a global catastrophe, could have affected our species deeply at a psychic level, and that's been playing out ever since in our treatment of each other and ourselves. Uh, certainly in the context of child abuse that we've been discussing, yes, there are individuals who just have certain predilections and urges that they cannot control that fall outside of what currently is the law. But the idea that the level of interconnection organization that you, amongst other people, have documented it's simply to serve that seems unlikely, but is the agenda behind that, if there is one, maybe more than one, is that about somehow trying to resolve or heal the trauma of those committing these acts? Or is it trying to hack reality? I think the paraphrasing your book now to, you know, to apply a sort of hadron collider to the human psyche. Or is it some combination of the two? That's something that we'll get into uh, in future. In the meantime, uh, we've been talking today. Say your the book that uh, inspired the talk is *Prisoner of Infinity: uh, UFOs, Social Engineering, and the Psychology of Fragmentation*. That's available available everywhere. Has been for some time. And uh, we also mentioned *Vice of Kings* and other of your books out there. Uh, so, if you want to just uh, before we sign off, share details with listeners of your your website and your podcast yourself, and um, anything you might be working on or that you'd like to throw out there. Uh, sure. Well, I'd also mention Seen and Not Seen during this talk as the first. That's kind of the, the primer to the rest of my investigations because it began with my own history, although they all include elements of that. So that's also that book is available. Um, I've got a weekly podcast called The Liminalist. Uh, I tried to make it weekly. I'm not sure if there's going to be one this week. And um, basically everything, I mean, all the articles, most of the articles and, and all the books I've written you can find out my website horticulture.com yeah that's about it I think wonderful okay well once again Jason thank you so much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com great thanks Greg <laughs>